Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for this beautiful day. Kind to us in our uh, circumstance, and we've enjoyed the food, we enjoyed the fellowship, we'd ask you we'd spend uh, our minds enjoying uh, your word. In your son's name, amen. Okay, halfway through the book, and um, I, I was pleased, I, I didn't know, I just sort of imaginatively said to myself, okay, I could do Revelation in four weeks. And then I had to figure out how to divide the book into four sections, and write about where you would just put a marker at a quarter, a quarter, a quarter, thematically it shifts. And so we're in stepping into the second half, and I had this curiosity, because right here at the beginning of the second half, chapter 12, this is, by the way, this is um, the main event, okay? We had two woes that already went past last week, and we ended with the, the second woe is past, verse 14 of chapter 11. Behold, the third woe is soon to come, and this is what we're stepping into. The third woe is the main event. After this section this evening, where this woe takes place, we then have wrap-up. The victory of Christ in what he does. You have hymns of triumph over the whore of Babylon. You have the new Jerusalem. You have a few other things, the millennium, other things to the end of the book. But what the book is about, what the book is pointing to, is what we're covering tonight. And we'll be able to answer the question of, more precisely, when is this talking about? Because we know the book already told you that it was going to be soon for John. We're assuming that, since he said it was going to be soon for him, and it was not going to be a long time, not to seal up the words of the prophecy. But we get that in this section here. We also get the 666 in the section here, so it's just fasten your seatbelts, you know. But here at the beginning of chapter 12, a great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was with child, and she cried out in, the, in her pangs of birth, in anguish for delivery. And another portent appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems upon his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child, that he might devour her child when she brought it forth. She brought forth a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which to be nourished for 1,260 days. It's not the Virgin Mary, by the way. Um, what's interesting about this is, well, it's one of those images you, I think even in the uh, Silence of the Lambs set of films, one was called Red Dragon, I think, from this passage. Um, What's interesting is this, right at the right, where I stopped reading in English, now it's different in the Greek, of course, and I didn't have any means of figuring it out in the Greek, but I just took the whole book of Revelation, dumped it into Word, figured out how many words were in the dang book, then went to this point where I just stopped reading, erased the rest of the uh, book, 
and it was almost half, exactly halfway number of words. Now, I'm not a numerologist. I'm not one who's looking at those sorts of signals for any meaning or importance. But when people, you've heard people talk about chiasms in literature and how they, your centerpiece of the chiasm builds to a point and then mirror images off the other side. It'd be something for you to look at. I'm not even offering you that it's chiasm, but this passage I just read and the next passage could, you could, you could try to read them chronologically, but they seem like they're telling the same story from a different angle. Okay? The next verse is, now war rose in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Rejoice then, O heavens, and you that dwell therein, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. As a hint, another limitation there. When the dragon saw you had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had borne the male child, but the woman was given two wings of the great eagle, that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Now, that just happened in the previous passage, right? She fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God which is to be nourished for 1,260 days, which is about three and a half years, which is another way of saying time, times, and half a time. That's a quote out of Daniel uh, uh, referring to a three and a half year period. So like one time, two times, and half a time. So in other words, there's this, there's this element of, I'm looking at the story from the, part, the portent perspective. The woman clothed in the 12, I mean, crowned, in the, um, crowned with the 12 stars, the, clothed in the sun, moon at her feet, um, bearing a child, a dragon tries to kill the child, she flees, the child is taken to heaven. Um, and then it tells you more pragmatically, a war arose in heaven. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Satan, this is the only place in the Bible that talks about Satan's, uh, tells the story of Satan's fall. Okay, the only place. Passages mention Satan, but they don't tell the story except here in Revelation. It's going to affect your view of what has happened cosmologically with Satan what you discover about when these things happen. Now, identifications here, I can't tell you who the woman is. Some people think it's a constellation uh, dating device in that uh, the certain constellation with 12 stars, Virgo, I think, um, uh, the, the, the woman standing in Virgo with, if the head, is, if the sun is in the body, like a zodiacal path, and then crowned with the moon, is it? Moon under the feet. Crowned with the stars, moon under the feet. Some people th try to go to all sorts of lengths to figure out with star charts when that happened or how to narrow things down. 
it's at least a astronomical image referring to something that is left behind by what seems to be pretty clearly the Christ being born. When he says, the child that will rule the nations with a rod of iron, all the nations with a rod of iron, and the devil tries to kill the child. Now, um, that is a... Um, you can say, well, I don't know if that's absolutely clear. But you're looking, remember, you're looking, one of the things in a visionary book is you're looking for some clear moment where you can put a thumbtack in and say, okay, I know this is the birth of the Christ. Now, you might not be convinced that the child being born who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's out of Psalm 2, I think. Um, I thought I had it in the margins, but I guess I don't. So if I looked... It is? Oh, yeah. Yeah, thank you. I will tell you the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And the same images used in the revelation of the Christ earlier in the book. Right? A little bit later, actually, here in the, the chapter 19, next passage down. From his mouth issues a sharp sword from which to smite the nation, with which to smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, which is something we cover this week, the winepress of his wrath. So it's identified, that phrase is identified as Christ. I don't think it's limited to Christ. You could talk about any aggressive ruler as ruling with a rod of iron. Okay? Um, I, it probably has a... Um, you know, in Roman times, your, your authority was established by lictors. How many lictors were assigned to you? And the lictors uh, would carry the fasces, where we get the word fascist uh, from. And the fasces was a bundle of wooden rods wrapped around an axe. You see it on old pennies. Um, or old federal buildings. They'll have these bundle of rods tied together with an axe blade out of the middle. That's the fasces. And it was a symbol of your ability to rule. You could punish, you could reward, you could execute. Uh, and when Paul is beaten in Philippi, uh, the lictors are called in to beat him because they're the ones with the broomsticks, you know. So when you say rod of iron, you go, oh dear, not broomsticks. Uh, rod of metal, uh, and that uh, represents, a, a, you might say, a strong rule. But you might, you might say, okay, I don't, I'm not following that. Yeah, put it in, put it in the, your back pocket. Consider it for later. Um, the other elements of this, the the book never identifies the woman. You know that the woman is, you might say, the the plan and purposes of God minimally, whatever that lived out as. Because the, the Christ child, if this is the Christ, comes from her and is caught up to heaven. You don't have the story of the death, burial, and resurrection uh, of the Christ. You just have this child coming from her that will rule the nations with the rod of iron. Then her other children are pursued. Um, verse 17, that in the first chapter, Then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus. 
So that's the group of people that are also her offspring. But her main child, the devil tries to kill, is this child that will rule with a rod of iron. So the, the book doesn't feel the need to identify her to you. But you get the idea that she is, you might say, the earthly living, you might say, purposes of God that left behind to suffer under the onslaught of the dragon. He's being, she's being chased, he tries to flutter away, he wants to kill her. If he can't kill her, he's going to kill her other kids. That's what it's about. Now, this whole section, like most of the book, is talking about how much uh, suffering the church is going to go through in terms of Thatcher's success. This is a book, this is a passage about the vengeance of God for the death of the righteous. Remember the, uh, the, the, the martyrs who were crying out from under the altar um, asking for vengeance earlier in the book? Uh, that is being paid, paid out in this section. But the devil comes down to the, the devil comes down to the earth and he is upset, but he's no longer in heaven. The thing is, he is, this is a transition that we noted uh, last week when at the end of chapter 11 it says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. And um, uh, where does it say it? Uh, there was a section that uh, another voice declared um, uh, that this was the moment of God's mystery coming and being fulfilled. The angel says this, uh, or the uh, loud voice, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. Now this keeps getting, get, this is standard. The, sa the Satan, who is not his name, it's just his, his title, just means adversary. The devil means accuser. We don't know this agent's name. Um, but we'll feel free to call him Satan, since everybody knows him as that. Um, and this is what he's thrown down from. Heaven is preserved and Satan is disrupted. Now we know that this already has passed for both John already, not because it's, he's going past it in the vision, but because Christ says in Luke 10 that I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And we know, we're narrowing it down, we know that in Zechariah, and I have the passage here in, right midway down on the right-hand side column, Zechariah 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. That goes on with the rest of the story, but Satan's job in heaven, you could see it in Job, you could see it in Zechariah, Job, one of the earliest books written in the Old Testament, Zechariah, one of the last books written in the Old Testament. So you're talking about 400 B.C.-ish for Zechariah. So between 400 B.C. and Christ, 
Satan falls. Because this is what describes the nature of his fall. He had a war in heaven, which is another topic for another time. How do you get wars in heaven? And can you hurt them? I mean, if you're fighting another angel, if you're an angel, can they hurt you and can you hurt them? Or is it like the old G.I. Joe cartoons where guns went off but nobody was ever hit? Or is it just like Dragon Ball Z, I guess? I saw enough of it with my kids watching it that they have all sorts of expressions of power knocking people end over apex and they always seem to get up like Wiley e. Coyote. Um, no one ever is hurt and no one ever is um, dead. But I think that this sort of thing is a pretty major event that the woman, the, the time of God's purposes to bring forth the child does, Satan really reacts badly with outright rebellion loses that, and I, I say this matches up not just because of what it says about the woman, that her being nourished in the wilderness, but because in the first account, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, and then he and his angels are cast down to the earth, and the, uh, a third of the stars, the stars were considered angels. Okay, in biblical uh, uh, normative usage. So it's repeating the same story of Satan's fall. One describing his animus towards the woman and the child. One the war with Michael. This may tie in with Daniel because at the end of Daniel there is, uh, I think it's in Daniel 12 here on the right hand side. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So at the end of Daniel's prophecies, it's prophesied that Michael's time would arise. And if this moment happens in the intertestamental period, it could be the very same event. Okay? And that m revelation overlapping with Daniel. Um, now, the, the dragon aspect, I don't know if Satan is actually serpentine or reptilian, I guess you'd say. He might be. Uh, you have some evidence that the seraphim may have been reptilian um, in that the same word seraph is used to describe the poisonous snakes that were biting the people in the wanderings in numbers. Same word, seraph and seraph. Um, and they were supposedly flying snakes. So, that's another story for another time, another Bible study with more time. Um, well, I don't know. It may just be an image, a symbol in the play that God is putting on for John. It could also be another seraph who is uh, playing the role of Satan in this play. I don't know. But his image, seven heads, ten, um, ten horns, seven diadems on his heads, is thematically, I have that quote from a Ugaritic uh, hymn. The Ugarit, Ugarit was a um, city uh, uh, called Ras Shamra now. It's on the coast of Syria or Lebanon right in there. Uh, and uh, uh, they found a whole bunch of ancient manuscripts of religious nature that have a lot in common with the Bible. They use the same names for Leviathan, this Lotan is the same etymological root as Leviathan. Thou didst smite Lotan, the writhing serpent, 
didst destroy the crooked serpent, the accursed one with seven heads. So there is this uh, thematic cosmological in, uh, uh, familiarity. Like we said about the uh, chimera last week, um, the head of a lion, body of a goat, tail of a serpent with the head at the end of the tail. Ancient pagan peoples knew the same monsters or the same beasts, the same celestials, um, and it doesn't mean that the Bible is silly and pagan and, and, and just nonsense fairy tales. It just means that maybe we live in a more interesting world than we had thought. Um, the, uh, uh, I have a few other passages if you want to look them up. One's Job 41, Psalm 74. Um, I have Isaiah printed out here. In that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpents, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. This is a, a, a notable image. Leviathan is a notable image of a malevolent, spiritually powerful prince that is a dragon. In Job he breathes fire. So there are fire-breathing dragons. Uh, I don't know if this is if Leviathan is the same agent because there seems to be other reptilian princes. Uh, so it, Leviathan and Satan, I'm not equating the two. I'm just saying that this is an image that goes way back even to pagan and biblical um, events. Well, at the end of chapter 12, the dragon is thrown down and. Remember, Christ saw him fall like lightning from heaven. He probably fell after Zechariah. So we've got it narrowed down to the end of the Greek influence, the beginning of the Roman influence. The Romans came into Palestine in about 60 BC, and the Greeks had had control largely this uh, what's called the Diadochi, which were the successors to Alexander the Great. And uh, the the two of them that fought over Palestine were the Seleucids out of Syria and Babylon, <coughs> and uh, the Ptolemies Tol out of Egypt. And it went back and forth between those two. And that's what Daniel had prophesied, was that contention over the temple in um, Jerusalem by these various uh, political powers. So the devil falls to earth. We're trying to figure out when are we, what's going on? When, what, what do we got here? What, What's starting up and what year are we dealing with? And he stood, last line of the first chapter, and he stood on the sand of the sea. The dragon has been thrown down. He's ticked. Things didn't work out in his rebellion. You must wonder why he thought he could get away with it, but, you know, hey, angelic ones. And then it says the next verse, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. This is the famous beast that we are interested in. With ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems upon its horns. Looks like the dragon in terms of his, at least from the neck up. Many necks up. And a blasphemous name upon its heads. And the beast saw, the beast that I saw was like a leopard. So he's not dragon-like. Okay? But he is... The, the dragon hits the ground, stands on the beach, and out of the, this is with the great sea, is, um, you're probably talking about the Mediterranean, at least in terms of the visionary aspect, 
and it rises out of the sea in service to the dragon. Its feet were like a bear's, its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power. So there's this exchange. This beast rises out of the sea, and the dragon goes, okay, you have my authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. Doesn't tell you what that was. You get a little more information a little further on. The whole earth followed the beast in wonder. Men worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast. Now, that seems to be structured, we'd have to look at another translation, as if they didn't actually worship the dragon, but they worshipped the dragon because they worshipped the beast. It looks how it's worded. Men worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast. So, since they worshipped the beast, and he had given his authority to the beast, they were worshipping the dragon. So, sometime after Zechariah, before Christ, this moment is transpiring. Now, this beast is set up against God, it says in verse 6, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Now, that means that there's this, <coughs> remember that <coughs> the biblical cosmology you are dealing with many exalted powers. A third of the stars, a third if you want to think the angels, many angels fell with Satan. Satan had a large rebellion of people who were used to living in heaven and knew God and still rebelled and were cast down. The rest of them didn't. But that's a lot of, a lot of agents. And there's an animus between the devil and those who had just Remember, fought a war with him and threw him to the ground. And he's very upset. And so blaspheming God and when it says, and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. They weren't making fun of his house, his dwelling, or making fun of heaven as kind of a place. It was making, uh, blaspheming those who dwell in heaven. So... One of the basic things we're instructed about in, like in Jude, we're told not to ever revile the glorious ones, including Satan. Satan is a glorious one. Satan, on the other hand, didn't keep his hierarchy straight, and when he lost his war, instead of repenting, he just shook his fist at heaven and railed against the other glorious ones, God and the other glorious ones. It also was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Now hold it. I thought this was, well, we, we don't recognize living in an affluent society how we define Christianity this way. Sitting in comfort in the backyard with well-fed, clasping our pudgy hands together. And uh, we don't understand the church around the world suffers, and down through history it has suffered. And we're lucky to be breathing free air right now. Thank God for it. But uh, that's not normative. And this time was a really bad time for the church. Really bad time for um, those who believed in Christ. He says, in verse 10, If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone slays with the sword, will the sword, he, must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. 
Now that same line is repeated. Let's see if I... Verse 12 of chapter 14, third column, midway down. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Okay? That just helps you all define who the other children were, the saints. It says, the endurance of the saints, commandments and faith in Jesus. The woman's other children were those who could meet the commandments and bear testimony to Jesus. So, the saints. Her children are the saints, not the Catholic ones. You guys. Now, at this point, you gotta, you got to get your program out because you got to know what's going on in the book. This is the third woe. This is what you were ramping up to see. This is still happening in time before John ex maybe even existed. Okay? Not long before because he's, he's probably a little younger than Christ, but not much. But he's looking into the past still because Christ already saw Satan fall like lightning and we just witnessed his fall told in narrative form. Now, after the, uh, the, four, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, after Apollyon, after the first two woes, Satan falls from heaven. And this is still past tense for John. But, so we got one beast on the ground. We got a dragon standing on the beach. We got a beast with seven heads. And then it says, verse 11, then I saw another beast. Oh, great. We don't even know who the first beast is. We got a second beast, which rose out of the earth. So if you want to keep them straight, sea beast, earth beast. One has seven heads, ten horns. One has two horns, like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It is a servant of the first beast, okay? It makes the earth and inhabitants worship the first beast, verse 12. And it defines the first beast, that which was, verse 13, 14, which was wounded by the sword and yet lived. That lets you know that the wound that the first beast received was one of violence, didn't fall down a flight of stairs. Uh, some, the sword was raised against it. Now at this point, you get to the place where everybody starts flipping out and starts reading books on Revelation that you shouldn't read. Because they will tell you almost to a, almost to a person the wrong thing. Because it tells you verse... 16, also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both slave and free, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, uh -huh. so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Got it? I'll wait. You ready? Let him who is understanding, I'll give you a few more seconds. Reckon the number of the beast, for it is a human number. Its number is 666. Now, we could differ on this. I think it's talking about the second beast. Because that's the context of which beast, the its, throughout that passage. It had a two horns. It exercises its name. It, it, it strikes me. You could say, I think it's the first beast. I think it's the second base. I, I, I don't want to fight about it, but 666. Now, one thing we have to recognize, you could work out, if you assign um, uh, numbers to the American English 
phonetic alphabet in order and you add up Henry Kissinger's last name, it will be 666. Also, if you look at Ronald Reagan's name with his middle name, all three of his names have six letters. And he seems to be dead. And he was assassinated at one point. Now, Wilson, Ronald Wilson Reagan. Good name, but hold it, my name. Mine is four, five, six. I'm more like a counting out. Now, that's not how our alphabet works. You could use our alphabet to create any sort of code without official numeric equivalents to whatever you want to do. You could go by tens. You could do whatever you want. Ancient languages, because there weren't Arabic numerals, they used the letters in their alphabets for numbers. That's why they call them Roman numerals. Right? And they're like M and C and L and V and I, I, I. Roman numerals. They used their letters. And it was common for people to know what their name was in a number. We have graffiti from ancient Rome. I love a girl whose number is 546. It's, it's how you told the girl you liked on the overpass with spray paint that, that you cared for her and only you kind of knew that it was whatever her name is, 546. There are jokes about Emperor Nero recorded in Suetonius. Suetonius wrote the 12 Caesars. And where it says, he was so bad, he was just awful. And Suetonius recognizes this. And he, he says there were ditties going around Rome that making fun of him. And one of the ditties involved that his na name, the number of his name matched the phrase, he murdered his mother. And it did, 1005. His name was 1005, and the phrase he murdered his mother was 1005, because he murdered his mother. Okay? He attempted it about four times, succeeded at the end, but um, he's a very bad man. But in case anybody wants to suggest that Nero is the 666, his number is 1005. From the period it was told to us. Okay? Now, you could arrange his name differently and have it work out to 666, I think in Hebrew. I think you can make Nero or Neron Caesar in Hebrew work out to 666. But the problem is, we'll get to that with the problem with that in a minute. Everybody's possible 666. You could be pretty just loosey-goosey about it. But we're dealing with a world that we know has been told this is a short time coming. It's, we're on the edge of this. You all know what I mean, wink, wink. You probably know who I mean, wink, wink. When I say his number is 666. Or they'd recognize it when it popped up. Chapter 14. In case you're all weirded out by the number on your hand or forehead, remember the Christians, the 144,000 uh, uh, celibate Jewish people, uh, they have the Father's name, verse 1 of chapter 14, their fa his Father's name written on their foreheads. The, just like in Ezekiel, the followers of God had their, they were marked for God, and, the, and, and here he's marking the bad guys who have worshipped the beast, who have given themselves over to the beast, whatever the beast represents, they've given themselves over, and this image of marking foreheads is like uh, when you talk about for the law of the Jews, you bind it to your hand and your forehead, 
there are people in Judaism today who have portions of the law written out on pieces of paper, put in tiny little boxes, and tied to their foreheads and tied to their hands. Now, literalism is not healthy. You know, it's, that's not what the Lord meant. But it's, a, it's an image both for the law and for Ezekiel and for the writer of Revelation. It's a, both for the Christian, the name of God, you are marked with the name of God. They, at least the one, the Christians at this point, the 144,000. The ungodly, the people who worship the beast, they are marked with the name or the number of the beast. Now, in this point, there's a few interlude sort of things that go on. The benefit is, for you, is in the last chapter, chapter 17, um, the, the angels tell John what he's talking about. So we'll get to that more quickly by skimming kind of over these interlude things. There's the 144,000, an angel declaring the eternal gospel, a prophecy in verse 8 of chapter 14, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, the introduction of a new image, Babylon the Great, and its fall. And then um, uh, the judgment of those that worship the beast in verse 9 and following. And then he says again, here is the call for the endurance of the saints. So we're supposed to be watching. While we're being, if we're in first, let's say we're in the first century, like it seems it has to be if the time is soon, we're watching our friends and our fellow Christians get arrested, sometimes killed, sometimes tortured, sometimes let go. And we're wondering, and all of a sudden, <clears throat> bad things are happening in Judea, and you're wondering what's, and this prophecy comes down the line telling you that this is what Christianity is about. We suffer for the faith because we believe it. Christ suffered, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. That's the nature of us. We don't have to suffer. We don't, in some masochistic way, want to suffer. But we know that our faith is at that level, that giving it all up is worth it. He gave it all up. For that, we give it all up. And that's sort of the measure of the saints of God, that their death, since it's an evil thing to bring about, has to be judged. Remember the crying out from under the altar, Lord, how long are you going to let us go unavenged? And then he says in verse 13, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord henceforth. That's kind of... Hey, you don't want to hear that little benediction as you leave church. Blessed are you who may die this week. Blessed are the dead. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. It's that we believe in heaven. We believe in God. We believe in the redemption. And all this, once you start worrying and crying about it, you examine yourself because you're showing that you have a faith in something else that is calling you more loudly than the things of God. We don't go out and try to die, but death has lost its sting. And then he says, one like the Son of Man, verse 14. We don't know if that's the Christ because the phrase is used sometimes otherwise, and the other angels seem to be humanoid as well, the ones that aren't snakes. With a golden crown on his head, that might be Son of Man out of Daniel, there's that possibility that it's the Messiah. And a sharp sickle in his hand. 
And the reaping happens here. And angels come out with sickles, and one of them reaps the, I believe, um, it doesn't say what the product is, the harvest of the earth. And then there's another angel with a sickle who um, reaps forth the clusters of vine, the vines, and then the wine press crushes it, and that's where blood flows out of the wine press as high as a horse's bridle, about four feet, uh, 1,600 stadia. I don't know how many miles that is. It's a good amount of miles. A lot of blood in the vision. Kind of like a Stephen King movie. Now, the interesting thing here is these are interlude statements telling you, hold it, the judgment is about to happen. This is good. Take this place over here. Do this. Create this image. He mentions the angel who has the power of fire. Well, that in itself isn't much. But a little later in chapter 15, 16, verse 5, I heard the angel of water say, I have an angel of power of fire, an angel of water. Um, if you know your four elementals, earth, air, fire, and water, you want to be on the lookout. Anybody remember verse? Ephesians, perhaps? I have it over here on the side, I think. I have the reference. The spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience is the prince of the power of the air. So, this might identify Satan or whoever that prince is. There's a prince who has the power of the air. There's a prince who has the power of the fire. Prince of the power of the water. And it may be held up evidentially because in this next section, when he steps into this, it's the the wrath of God, the bowls, the bowls, the plagues that are going to be poured out, those are, um, uh, might be from the wine press. The bowls may be filled with the judgment coming out of the wine press, but they're poured individually on the things they curse. You'll see in verse, um, poured his bowl on the earth, and one thing happened. Verse 3, poured his bowl on the sea, the angel poured his bowl on the rivers, and the fountains of water. That's where the angel of water says something. But the thing the angel of water says, verse 6, For men have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. That's why the evidence that the, the plague bowls are filled out of the wine press that is flowing with blood because they're pouring out onto the thing and it's giving them blood to drink because it's turning the waters into blood. You know, so... That, but whatever the case, the angel of water goes, see, poured it on the waters, I'm in charge of the waters, or I have that sort of relationship, but they don't repent. The fourth angel poured his bowl on the sun, the fifth angel on the throne of the beast, the sixth angel on the river Euphrates. This is all to gain repentance, this is all to hurt the wicked. It's not to hurt the right, the, the wicked have been hurting the righteous. God is coming back to hurt the wicked for having hurt the righteous. Okay, got that? You know, you have, this is what has been called out for. Now, the thing I was saying about the prince of the power of the air, the seventh angel, I'm jumping down a little bit, the seventh angel poured his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And that's the end of the seven plagues. Now, it's interesting that the last one is poured into the air and the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience at that time was the prince of the power of the air. 
and the, 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 the plague is being poured out on the thing to receive the plague. So it may have been a shot at uh, uh, the prince of the power of the air. But right before that, I didn't mean to skip over it, when um, it talks about the kings of the whole world gathering together to do this, whatever this is, uh, the beast and the false prophet. The, the false prophet is... Um, 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 the second beast. Okay, the the dragon, verse 13 of chapter 16. And I saw issuing from the mouth of the dragon and from the mouth of the beast and from the mouth of the false prophet. The only other character on the table is the second beast who has been serving kind of like a prophet pointing to the beast and the dragon. Three foul spirits like frogs for their demonic spirits performing signs and go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And this is where you get Armageddon. Okay? It doesn't happen. You think with all the Bible you know, scholars out there telling you about Armageddon, you want more than one word. And it doesn't even say a, 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 the battle happens there. They are gathered together at a place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Now, the play, we know where the place is. Nobody's in the dark about this. Uh, we have a reference in... Uh, where is it? Somebody could tell me. Almost to the bottom. Zechariah 12. Yeah, Zechariah 12, uh, 10 through 11. Men Zechariah mentions how the weeping for the one they have pierced would be as large as the weeping for Hadad Remen, who was a storm god, of, of uh, various uh, northern Mesopotamian peoples. Um, Hadad Rimen on the plain of uh, Armageddon. The plain, the, the, it's not the plain of Armageddon, it's Armageddon, which is the plain of Megiddo. We know where the plain of Megiddo is. It's, it's the main valley pathway in from the coast up um, near uh, Sidon coming in uh, towards Galilee. It's an open um, hey, could I draw something? Okay. Jerusalem, Dead Sea, Galilee. Through here is an opening of, uh, rather than a ridge, these are all mountains here, and mountains there, and mountains back here. And this through here, you know, uh, Nazareth is around here. The plain of Megiddo, Samaria. Um, that's where uh, Solomon had his stables at Megiddo for all of his horses. Uh, very famous place where a number of major battles were fought in antiquity. Some in the modern times. I think uh, who was the guy that fought there in Palestine uh, in World War I? I was thinking I don't know. Don't remember. But Ramses fought there, battle against the Hittites. Um, so various famous battles happened. So to gather the armies, and this is actually the path that was taken in. As you could probably guess, I am opting for Rome being the problem. And this is where they came through into Palestine to come down on Jerusalem to lay siege to it um, the next year after this book was written. Okay? Now, Kind of, I've got to move here. got about 12 minutes. Um, so he's made a way. The, the phrase Armageddon says, 
they gather together here, and the kings from the other side of the Euphrates, which may mean Parthia, you know, may mean a reference to um, uh, older biblical images of Cyrus and the destruction of Babylon and the freeing of the captives, things like that. There might be other things in it. We're not given a clear meaning when it says uh, the kings um, from the east because the other people back when their four angels held at the Euphrates to be released, but this is the river dries up to allow the kings of the east. You could try and see if they could put together if you want. The uh, At the end of... Uh, that section of the plague when it says lightning, voices, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. I just want to remind you, look back over your notes, you'll see that at the end of the seven seals and the seven trumpets, you also have the same list at the, after the seventh, there's this list of these same noises. Uh, it's a kind of a punctuation device uh, in the experience for John. Now, at the end of that, remember he has said, um, that now is the time of the wrath of God. With this, these, with these poles, the wrath of God is ended. Okay. Verse nineteen: the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered great Babylon to make her drain the cup of the fury of His wrath. Okay. So that Babylon thing that is pointed out back in chapter 13, no, back in chapter 14, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. We kind of need to know who Babylon the Great is because that's another image that we haven't been playing with here. And this last chapter tells us. It tells us a whole bunch of things. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to write more things on my flip chart. Quickly, because I don't have much time. Um... One of the seven angels, verse 1 of chapter 17. Who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who is seated upon many waters. He's going, harlot? I didn't know, it wasn't a harlot here a minute ago. Uh, the, visions, you, you've probably done that when you've been telling your dreams to friends. And you go, yeah, and then you turned into a toad. And I don't know how that happened, but... But the toad was still talking, just like you. Whom the kings of the earth, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and with the wine of whose fornication the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. So he says, she's, she's not slut-shaming. This woman is the uber-slut. She has slept around with every king of the earth and made a lot of buck. And he carried me, the angel, carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. What color is scarlet? Oh. Which was full of blasphemous names. Who was blasphemous named earlier? Oh yeah, the beast. Oh, it had seven heads and ten horns. Okay, now we know. We're back, back on track. The woman is sitting on the beast. The first beast. The sea beast. And we now know one more thing about the sea beast. It, does, it might have the body of a leopard and lion and whatever. But it's as red as the dragon. The dragon was red, seven heads, seven, uh, ten horns, uh, ten, uh, seven uh, crowns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and bedecked with gold and jewels and pearls. 
holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her fornication. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So, okay, all right, we know where this vision has been going. It was punishing the wicked in the first two woes. It was setting aside the believers. It was listening to the cries of the martyrs and the righteous slain on earth. And it said, okay, now for the main event, we're going to let the wrath hit. And it looks like this whore of Babylon, mother of harlots, was part of her drunken uh, sin was on the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is to ascend from the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to behold the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Now that third, that there's the woman, the beast, and the beast that uh, was, is not, and is to ascent. Okay, that's probably the second beast. It has these different ways of titling it. You have to sort of subtract out the ones that you know who they are. Um, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains. Okay. Got any ideas? The seven hills of Rome. It's legendary. I could I could write them out, but I can only remember the Virinal, the Quirinal, the Calian, Palatine. We have the four. He, whatever. There's seven. Um, the Vatican is not one of them. Um, but seven hills of Rome you know the slogan and he, when he tells you this you go oh the woman the Babylon seated on seven hills okay that's too easy it might be maybe Babylon is Rome guilty of killing Christians you bet I mean you got already had Nero John has lived through Nero where he used Christians as torches for his parties, um, that makes it um, um, a likelihood, and the woman is seated. But we don't know if the, she's seated on the beast who has seven heads, but means seven hills, or is she seated on the seven heads because she's seated on the seven hills. We don't know that. We know she's a city. We know that this beast is representing somehow Rome. And if you miss that, it says they are also seven kings. Now this is, this is where, this is the most clear thumbtack moment you have in the book. He tells you he is writing the book under the reign of the sixth king. He tells you seven kings, that's what those heads represented. Five of whom were, one is, and one is yet to come. But he will remain but a little while. And the second beast, he is an eighth. So, okay, 
Now we just need to know the list of our emperors, right? Right. That's safe. Let's see if I can. Augusta, Tiberius, um, Gaius, Claudius, Nero, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, Vespasian, Titus, Domitian. Okay, that's your first century of emperors uh, of Rome. Augustus starts, you know, back in the BC century when Caesar is killed, Julius is killed in 44 BC. Augustus fights his way to dominance and becomes the first emperor of Rome. But he slops over it, you know, you know, Caesar Augustus and the whole world was to be taxed and Joseph and Mary, the story. So he's first. This is right, he dies right at the end, 96, he dies AD. So this is the first century Roman emperor. Um, so you have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. But this helps us because the dragon lands on the sea and out of the sea rises this beast with seven heads. And the first five heads from the time John is writing have already passed. So if you have any trouble with the prophecy having past tense in it, this is also a problem passage for you. Those five heads are before John, are before John's writing time. So it's probably the first, the five, the first five, right? Yeah, one, two, three, four, five. Augustus really is the first emperor. Um, I read a book by a guy who wanted to make it Nero, and he could only make it the beast Nero only by making Julius Caesar the first emperor, but he couldn't because nobody believes that. <laughs> but Julius is the first Caesar because that was his family name, but Augustus is the first emperor. He's a princeps, first page of Tacitus and his annals. It lets you know that we went through all that, we had councils, we had dictators, and then Augustus became the first prince. So, Augustus is your first, Tiberius Gaius, this is Caligula, if you, don't, if you remember anything out of Rome. Little Boots, very bad man. Claudius, not bad. Nero, awful. Now this is called the year of the four emperors, because those four emperors all reigned in one year, fighting each other the whole time. Okay? They may have lasted two, three months each, your call is whether you count them. I only count number four because he's the one that came out on top, Vespasian. Uh, because if I try to make the prophecy work, including those three, uh, this might be the wound that hurt the uh, the beast, the first beast, the a wound of the sword that was healed by Vespasian. That's it. You know, it's possible, supposal. Who knows? So I make him six, him seven. Him eight. That would make the time of writing John right here. Vespasian comes to power in 69 AD, one year before the fall of Jerusalem. 
he started the campaign against Jerusalem. And then when he left to take power in Rome, he left it to his son Titus, who was the one that destroyed Jerusalem. Is that an omen? <laughs> I was having so much fun. If you're listening to this on SoundCloud, the tripod fell over. Okay, we'll try to wrap this up. Whatever the case, you are, you are made to either have Galba be your sixth, the writing during Galba. He says five were, one is, one is yet to come. Titus, when he reigns, lasts two years. Because remember, the seventh, he remains but a little while. And the eighth is one of the one of the seven. Not the same guy. People think that he was so much like Nero, persecutor of the church, that, and people were expecting Nero to come back from the dead because they really a lot of people really like Nero. Um, Domitian was just as crazy, uh, just as uh, I think he made his horse a senator. So I mean that's not awful, but it's not right in the head. Um, so whatever the case your third woe is happening in the first century he lets you know the time of the writing is the fifth sixth king of whatever empire he's living in and he's living in the Roman Empire this is why I say the writing of the book is 69 rather than 92 like some of the early Christian commentaries have it because I think the internal evidence is more important than someone who says something 300 years later. We don't, I'd take the Domitian date, but um, I think internal to the book, it, it's... Uh, and it doesn't, if you go with the Domitian date, that throws everything off about his claims of the prophecy and necessitates the, this book be about some futurism into the world thing. But if you say, accept this, 69, you're looking at... The, the fall of Jerusalem happens in 70. 70, if I had some ink. Fall of Jerusalem happens in 70. And suffice it to say, the Christians were warned by the prophets. We have this in Eusebius. Um, I have the reference here if you want to look it up somewhere on the side. Eusebius uh, uh, 3.5. The Christians were warned that this is what God had prophesied through Christ. And they all fled Jerusalem out to Pyria, Perea, to the city of Pella in the desert. That might be the reference to the woman going off into the wilderness. Um, that after the rebellion starts of the Jews, they leave town. And so when the Romans come in and destroy Jerusalem, they don't leave one stone on another. Um, the Christians aren't caught. There were close, one estimate is 700,000 dead in this battle, the other 100, 1,100,000. It was a lot of people. It was one of the great cities of the, of, of, of the ancient world. The key thing that I want you to know before, uh, three things, and I'll point them out and we'll be done. Um, one is that Christ, in his ministry, um, Matthew 23, there at the bottom I have the reference for you. 
Matthew 23, verse 32. He says, you serpents, oh, fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the prophet we've been looking at, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all this will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who were sent to you. Now that, that is Christ saying all of the righteous saints' blood was going to be required of the Jews in the first century. Okay? That's what this is, third woe is all about. The revenge for all the righteous blood shed on earth was going to be poured out on the whore of Babylon. The um, second thing, and we'll cover this a little bit in the last week, because it has hymns of, of, of the destruction of Babylon, uh, which mention various of these things. Um, the other point I wanted to make was uh, um, a Zechariah passage in Zechariah 5. Um, Zechariah 5. How do we get the image of Babylon? <clears throat> then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift up your eyes and see what this is that goes forth. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the ephah that goes forth. And he said, This is their iniquity in all the land. So this is the sin of the Jews. Put in a, contain, a jar. An ephah is a jar. <clears throat> and behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting uh, in the ephah. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the ephah and thrust down the leaden weight upon its mouth. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women with the wings of a stork coming forward, and their wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the ephah? And he said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they'll set the ephah down there on its base. The wickedness of Israel, portrayed as a woman in a jar with a lead lid taken to Babylon, out of the book that uses the image of the whore of Babylon representing the sins of Jerusalem. So that's where I think that comes from. Um, the last thing that I will mention for this evening is you say, what's that little picture in the corner? It says 666. Um, because I believe that the number 666 is referring to the eighth, the second beast, not the sea beast, but the earth beast. Um, since you can't pick out one of the Caesars to identify the number of his name, you're not given the name of the sea beast. You'd, how, what would you apply, what would you call this? The Flavio, Julio-Claudian Flavians um, family? But Domitian, What's interesting, you see that little, uh, that's him there, by the way, the picture. Um, and his name, Emperor Caesar Domitian Augustus Germanicus, abbreviated above his head, as it appears on a coin he issued, 
in one of the seven cities of the book of Revelation, the city of Sardis. So a coin issued by Domitian, his initials add up to 666, according to the Greek numbering uh, system off the letters. So I go, okay, it's, you'd have to look at a coin and go, oh my gosh, you know, that, uh, understandably, a um, little secret, a little sophisticated, a little nuanced, you might not buy it. Whatever the case, you'll, you need to know your history of your first century. It's happening in the first century. You've got to figure out which Caesar is he writing during the reign of. That will affect whether or not you're futuristic about the rest of the imagery. But whatever the case, the first two woes are before the Roman Empire. Okay? So when you read the book and you get the four horsemen of the apocalypse, don't let your friends start talking about the end of the world. You say, that was, that was back post-Alexander, pre-Augustus Caesar. That's where the story of the four horsemen happened. So make sure that you, 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 you pick up the clear passage to start to get sophisticated or supposal-driven um, uh, about the unclear. And watch how far you go on the unclear. Always be ready to back away from something and ready to argue a legitimate case that's other than your own. But on this, I know that he's writing it during whichever is the sixth emperor. You just got to tell me which one it is. Okay? Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. You've been kind to us. Keep our heads clear. Keep us from doing dumb things with knowledge we pick up in the Bible. In your son's name we pray. Amen.